Hello everyone, this is Vern Davis and I am your host of Plant Profits and I want to wish everyone a happy 420. Everyone, this is a day and time for cannabis consumption, celebration, advocation and activism throughout the world. And it's a great day and a great time uh, for all of us who believe in the, the plant. And I, I have a very, very uh, honored and special guest for you, my audience today. And uh, my next guest has been on the front line of the global cannabis reform movement for over 40 years. He's been established leader in California legalization movement, nicknamed the father <laughs> of legal marijuana by someone that I'm very familiar with by former speaker of the California Assembly and former mayor of the city of San Francisco, Brother Willie Brown. And um, my guest today, you've guessed already, I'm sure, is Mr. Steve D'Angelo. And he's also obviously the founder of The Last Prisoner Project. I could go on forever, Steve, but I, I think people should hear your voice now. <laughs> How are you? Good morning. Well, thanks so much for having me, Vern. It's great to be here with you on a, at least here in New York City, beautiful, sunny 420 day. <laughs> That's great. That wouldn't have it no other way where you are, brother. Um, look, I can, I have a whole list of things, uh, you know, that uh, this is amazing that you're here with us today and we're very honored. You founded Harborside, one of the first six dispensary licensed in the U.S. Think about that. Uh, you founded the first labs dedicated to cannabis, you know, in Steep Hill. Uh, you found the first money investment firm, the Arcview Group. You wrote a book, The Cannabis Manifesto. What a title. And I and I don't know anyone who hasn't seen on Discovery Channel, your miniseries, you know, Weed Wars. So, uh, look, it's just uh, so much to talk about. Look, um, but... The thing that's really interesting to me in these uh, in this conversation is really how does a guy, you know, who's, who's had 63 trips around the sun, right? You know, wh where did where did you come from, and how did this become your mission? Right? You went you you're an attorney. You went to law school at University of Maryland. T tell us a little bit about your early journey before cannabis. Sure. Well, um, I grew up in Washington, D.C., uh, in a civil rights family. Okay. Uh, the late 1960s, early 1970s is when I was a young teenager uh, coming of age, and I encountered the cannabis plant, and I immediately fell in love with it. I, I knew that cannabis was going to be a part of my life forever. Yeah. And so knew that I wasn't prepared to be a criminal for the rest of my life. I was not going to be hunted because of my love for this plant. And growing up at the time and the place that I did and the family that I did, yeah. it was very natural for me to stand up and, and fight for the things that I believed in. My parents taught me that, that, that you have to stand up for what you believe is right or, or you're just going to get rolled over. So I stood up and, and started becoming an activist at a very, very young age. I put on my first cannabis demonstration at 16 years old. Wait a minute. When you say you're, let's talk about that for a second. Cannabis a demonstration. What does that mean, Steve? 
So uh, this was the 1974 Youth International Party smoke-in in Washington, D.C. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was really the very first uh, time that I'd been out mm -hmm. in the street uh, advocating on behalf of cannabis. And this is an annual celebration that still happens to this day in Washington, D.C. Every 4th of July, we gather in front of the White House uh, to demonstrate our love for cannabis and our determination to see it free. It's been going on actually since 1971, and it goes on to this very day. Wow, that's, that's great. And 16 years old, you found yourself in the middle of that. I did. And, you know, back in the 1970s, it was a period when we were making a lot of progress in the cannabis freedom movement. Uh, in 1978, President Jimmy Carter uh, mm -hmm. said, endorsed nationwide decriminalization. So we sort of thought in those in those years that, that we had it in the bag. We were wrong, but we thought we were headed to victory. So that's a that's an interesting thought, right? Thought you had it in the bag and you didn't. Did, did folks let up? That, that, you know, you, you got some early victories, right? So did, did, did people ease up? Uh, what happened there? There was a lag. So between basically 1970 and 1980, you saw around 15 states across the country and many, many cities decriminalize cannabis and, right. and start reforming their laws. In 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected and started his Just Say No campaign right. and rolled all that backward. That's when we got the mandatory minimums. That's when we got the mandatory urinalysis. That's when we got all the militarization in, in, in South America of the quote unquote war on drugs. Of course, at the same time, the Reagan administration was bringing in cocaine that was flooding uh, communities of color all across the, the, the country. So um, uh, the um, um, sorry, just lost my train of thought there. There was, there was such a traumatic period of time. No, it was. Uh, you know, it, it was. It, so what happened is, um, you know, it was really scary. We, yeah. you know, one year we were out demonstrating in front of the White House, thinking that the president was on our side. And the next year, we had this guy in the White House who was sending troops against us. And you turn on the TV, and there were these really like scary commercials of frying eggs that were supposed to be your brains, and it was terrifying. And and most of the people who were active in the cannabis reform movement stopped. Um, you know, we had people who were leaders of of some of the major organizations who mm -hmm. retired, started pursuing private legal careers, um, uh, the, the you know, National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, which was our leading reform organization, almost went out of business during those wow. years. Wow. And it was really left to a to a small hardcore of mm -hmm. mostly folks who came out of the counterculture, folks who came out of the gay liberation movement, folks like myself, Jack Herrer, and Dennis Perone to carry the torch during those years. It was a hard time to be a cannabis activist. Did you feel alone, Steve? We felt terrified. I mean, it yeah. kind of felt like, you know, being in Germany in 1932 or something. It was it was really scary. We didn't know. You know, we there was a time when I didn't know whether I was going to be the last damn cannabis activist alive that wasn't locked up in prison for the rest of his life. And I mean, that's we were prepared for that if it came. Yeah, out. we were prepared. Did, did you get threats? Did, did you get threats and... And, and and was it was it ever 
dangerous or just living in doubt? Were you living in doubt all the time? We got more than threats. We got beaten up. We got hauled away. We got locked up. We had property seized. We had our children taken away from us. Uh, we endured a, a reign of state-sponsored terror. A lot of my friends spent years and years and years in prison, and, and all of us suffered greatly. We took a lot more than threats. We took hits. Wow. Wow, direct hits. Um, did you ever go into uh, uh, just a, a standard legal practice after law school um, or, or or have you been uh, your full life been uh, one of activism and 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 moving forward? I actually never fully made it out of law school. Uh, after my first year, uh, I realized that the pace of change that's offered within the legal profession is just too slow for me and uh and, yeah. and after a year and, and really feeling shackled yeah. uh, i decided that i would be more effective out in the street and that's where i've been ever since uh, you've done uh, a tremendous amount of uh, of good so if you if you just think about you know this is uh 10 12 years ago uh the huge victory against the u.s government efforts to shut down medical dispensaries in california in 2011 um how did that come about and what what was happening 12 years 12 years ago seems like forever ago now you know to me based on where we are in cannabis and where we we have aspirations to be um and with the plant it, it seems like uh forever but you know in in real world it's just a decade plus a couple years it's not it's not that long ago um what was happening then it was a very different time at that time yeah. uh you know california uh was really the only place in the country that had any appreciable degree of legal cannabis commerce that was going on colorado's medical cannabis industry was just beginning to come online at that point mm -hmm. so was washington state um nobody had passed adult use laws but we knew that in 2012 washington state and colorado we're going to be voting to legalize cannabis for adult use. And so the four U.S. attorneys in California in 2011 declared war on the state's medical cannabis industry, saying that we are all just criminals and profiteers, that we weren't doing anything to help people that were suffering. And uh, they launched this campaign uh, and they first went after landlords and they uh, sent letters to 600 landlords of dispensaries all over the state. Wow. We're going to seize the properties, seize them forever, take them away from the landlords if the landlords didn't evict their cannabis tenants. So 600 dispensaries got closed down that way until letter number 601 went out and that one came to Harborside and we stood up and we fought. Yeah. So harborside one of the first six uh medical license dispensaries in the united states well we all thank you for that fight uh when we come back we're going to dig into even more of uh the cannabis related activities that you're involved in steve we're going to take a quick break uh i'm Vern davis i'm your host of plant profits and plant profits is brought to you by produce global my guest today is steve d'angelo founder of The Last Prisoners Project. Happy 420, everyone. We'll be right back. 
Plant Profits will return so our sponsors can profit from these messages. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Vern Davis. I'm your host of Plant Profits, and thank you for joining us here on Plant Profits today. Plant Profits is brought to you by Protus Global. My guest today is Steve D'Angelo. Steve is the founder of The Last Prison Project, which we are going to talk about uh, today and what that is all about. But Steve, you were just telling us how in 2011, Harborside, you and Harborside, this one dispensary, stood up to the federal government. Tell, Just kind of tell us how that went. Well, um, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, I had anticipated this action on the part of the federal government, having been okay. an activist for a long time and, and yeah. seeing that, you know, this process, the legal process that they use to seize the properties is called civil forfeiture. Okay. And it's something that, that the government's been using against us for a long time. So when I negotiated the lease for Harborside, I never promised to obey federal law or all laws or every law, which is the usual language that's in a lease. Uh, I only promised to obey the laws of the state of California and the regulations of the city of Oakland. And so when my landlady went to evict me, there was nothing in the lease that I had broken. It was impossible to evict me. I paid my rent on time. I hadn't broken any of the conditions of the lease. And I never promised I was going to obey federal law. And it said right on my lease that it was for a cannabis dispensary. So the first, the, you know, there was this these multiple rounds of litigation that started in landlord-tenant court, then they popped up to federal court. Mm-hmm. In the middle of the court case, the city of Oakland jumped in on our side and sued the federal government, saying ah. that public health and safety crisis would- Wait a minute, how did you get the city to do this? Well, just because, you know, from the beginning, the whole mission of Harborside was to demonstrate that cannabis could be retailed in a way that brought benefits to communities and not harms. And we did that consistently throughout our entire existence. We took advantage of every opportunity that we had to support the city of Oakland, gun buybacks, neighborhood uh, cleanup programs, uh, little league, um, uh, free, all kinds of free services that we provided. Uh, and so the community saw us as being a part of the community. And yeah. we were attacked. They stood up and def- really was, uh, was Oakland defending itself, you know. Oh, that's terrific. That is terrific. So so your efforts got you involved with municipality government and state government, I would, I would imagine, right? How, how did you meet Willie Brown? Well, um, I, I, you know, I, Willie's um, a very dynamic guy who's who's always looking at, at the next thing, and he's been involved with cannabis. I mean, most people don't realize this, but Willie Brown in 1972 yeah. produced a measure in the California Assembly to make cannabis legal. So he's he's been a did he really? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Wow. 1972. This was in that wave that I was talking. Yeah. About, yeah. 1970s. Willie was one of those original folks that was pushing that forward then. And and so he's always been interested in cannabis. And and as as I started coming to attention, I picked up the San Francisco Chronicle one day and read a Willie Brown uh, um, a column that was talking about Harborside. So I, I picked up the phone and I called the mayor and, uh, and he asked, 
struck up a friendship that's that's existed uh, to this day. Oh, that's terrific. He's, he's he's a great guy. I don't. He probably doesn't remember me, but in the mid '90s, I lived in the Bay Area, and um, um, uh, he and I got to be in the same place several times. And um, um, and he's uh, if I'm not mistaken, he's a uh, he's a fellow Texan also. Uh, yeah, I think he grew up in Texas like I did, and we we had a little we had a little in common. We had several things in common, but it's been years and years ago. Um, I'm I'm glad he's doing well. Yeah, yeah. I, I I just had a chat with him not long ago, and he he is doing well. And I'll 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 send you his I'll send you your his greetings to him next time I talk to him. Oh, that's great. No, that's that's great. So this journey of yours and all the things this list I I read, which audience that was a very very partial list. <laughs> of accomplishments and, and, um, uh, just, uh, leadership, I will call it leadership in the industry that you have portrayed over time and for everyone's benefit. And, um, uh, there's some things that I, I'm passionate about that you do. And, and this, this, when we talked about the prisoner project, the last prisoner project, I, I just, how did this come about? How did The Last Prisoner come about? The inspiration for The Last Prisoner Project came in 2017. Uh, it was after California had passed its legalization, adult use legalization in 2016, but before the law went to effect in 2018. And I found myself in Toronto's financial district where I was looking for capital, like most other cannabis executives in California at the time. Yeah. And um, at the top of this very impressive skyscraper, uh, sitting in a very, very long and impressive conference table, and my phone starts buzzing. Normally, I don't get up from that kind of table if my phone starts buzzing. But in this case, it's my buddy Chuck, who's locked up in prison in Pennsylvania okay. at that time for the transport of 14 pounds of cannabis from California into the state of Pennsylvania, doing four years, for 14 pounds. And, um, you know, on that table in that conference room, there were papers and spreadsheets that anticipated hundreds of tons of cannabis and millions and millions, uncountable millions of dollars. Just mm. everybody at the table's in a really good mood, right? So I jump out. I go to the hall, I'm talking to Chuck, and it's grim. Yeah. It's just grim to talk to your friends when they're locked up. It's, it's yeah. you hear all the prison sounds, they don't have much time to talk. There's the damn recording, you know, the, the guards are listening to you. You can't say what you want to say. <clears throat> so I went back into the conference room. That grimness was still really clinging to me. Mm -hmm. And around the room, I saw everybody being really happy. Nobody in that room had any fear of ever going to prison, period, whatsoever. But everybody was looking forward to making a lot of money. And I knew in that moment that, you know, I could not look at myself in the mirror when I woke up the next morning if I did not resolve to do something to make sure that Chuck and everybody else in prison on cannabis charges got out. And that was really the genesis of the last prisoner project, the realization on, on my part that, um, we can't we can't have some people building intergenerational wealth. Um, mm -hmm. Other people are sitting in prison for the same thing. I can't I can't let that happen. Yeah, when I when I say the number forty thousand, 
What does that mean to you? 40,000 is the number of people who are still incarcerated in the United States uh, for cannabis convictions. And that includes people like Kevin Allen, who is serving a life without parole sentence in Angola prison in Louisiana. He's a black, yes. he's a former plantation where most prisoners do not make it out alive. He's there for the sale. That's a bad place. Angola is a bad place. Yeah. Angola is an evil place. And, you know, if there was an ounce of civilization in the state of Louisiana, that place would have been torn down and decommissioned a whole, whole lot of years ago. So how much cannabis did Kevin have? He had like, you know, a, a joist worth of, of weed. It was a half a gram worth of weed, a small, skinny, tiny little joint. And, and so what what laws are on the books in states where that can put you behind bars for what was what's, what's his sentence? It's how how what's what's his sentence? It's it's decades. It is life. Why? Without parole, Kevin Allen will die in Angola prison if we do not get him out. Right? So will Alan Russell, who is in the state of Mississippi. Wow. Uh, similar situation, doing life without parole for, in this case, 30 grams of cannabis that was found when he was pulled over in a vehicle. The situation is similar. Both of these gentlemen had two previous strikes. Okay. Uh, uh, and those states uh, will consider a minor cannabis conviction, like a the joint third strike, to be a third strike uh-huh. that, that qualifies someone to have the rest of their life taken away from them for a joint or for a bag of weed, which in many, many states, for the majority of people in the United States of America right now, you can go in and buy that same amount of weed and you can walk around with it and it is perfectly legal. Yeah. Evan Allen and Alan Russell are looking at life without parole. That is that is uh, amazing. So what type of and we're, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back. And what I want to talk about is the kind of infrastructure you put together to actually uh, uh, to to defend uh, affect um in a positive way, these outcomes, and you guys are are making some progress, and I know you are. I hear about it all the time, but I know that needs to be more. So I want to talk about the infrastructure of what that is when we come back, Steve. Uh, this is Plant Profits. I'm your host, Vern Davis. Plant Profits is brought to you by Produce Global. My esteemed guest today is Steve D'Angelo, and he's the founder of the last prisoner project we'll be right back plant profits will return so our sponsors can profit from these messages hey welcome back everyone happy 420 my guest i'm Vern davis uh and i'm your host of plant profits but my guest today is really, really important to what we're all about. Steve D'Angelo, founder of The Last Prison Project and many, 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 many other things in related to uh, cannabis and the movement uh, of legalization and the movement of acceptance and the movement of social justice. 
uh, in this uh, wonderful economy that this plan is creating. So, look, I, I, I really, Steve, uh, want to hear about what does it take to win these cases in, in uh, the last prisoner project? Well, it, 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 it takes it takes a movement and an industry of millions. Um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm happy to report that the last prisoner project has been uh, successful in, in helping to release many, many prisoners. Uh, and the reason that we've been able to do that is because the entire cannabis community has really rallied to support the last prisoner project. A number of major uh, cannabis companies have become donors to our Partners for Freedom uh, program. You can tell who they are because they'll have a little LPP logo on their packages. We have uh, several hundred dispensaries now which are participating <clears throat> in our Roll It Up for Justice program, okay. where uh, consumers have an opportunity to donate the change from their purchase to the Last Prisoner Project. We make it very easy for folks to support the project. Just go to lastprisonerproject.org, okay, and uh, and and you will find uh, a whole a whole a list of ways that you can plug in and and help support our efforts. Yeah, th- thank you for that, and that's that's great. Uh, lastprisonerproject.org is how you can uh, donate. That's great. Was it difficult to get these large MSOs involved? No, it, it really hasn't. Um, you know, uh, we've uh, almost everybody that we've approached has said yes. Um, we've had technical challenges. So, uh, yeah. you know, we've had to work with companies that do point of sale systems in order to put the, the kind of technical stuff in there that's necessary to be able to collect those donations. And we've had to work to help train bud tenders to engage with folks on, on, on how to do it. But, you know, the the one thing that everybody in the cannabis industry and the cannabis world agrees on is that nobody nobody should be in prison for cannabis and so we've you know in just a few years the the last prisoner project has grown from this you know very small little organization that started with a few volunteers and uh into you know possibly the the largest cannabis reform organization in the world today so and that's that's really because of the support of the community um and 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 the problem uh, is that as fast as we're releasing prisoners they're locking our people up even faster and so we just need to redouble our efforts and and keep on moving and be really persistent um folks may recall that president biden campaigned saying that nobody in pr- should be in prison on cannabis charges but as of today yeah. president biden has failed to release one single cannabis prisoner this is a this is a man who could release thousands of cannabis prisoners mm-hmm. with the stroke of a pen and he has not released one why is he stuck on cannabis he's frozen uh, I think uh, if you take a look at the way that Joe Biden has spent his career, this is no surprise. He's been one of the foremost uh, crusaders against cannabis. He was the architect of, of, of much of the legislation that resulted in mass incarceration. He knew it would result in mass incarceration because I told him so. Uh-huh. And so did hundreds of other activists. So um, uh, Biden's never been our friend. 
Uh, and uh, I, I think that it's time to demonstrate to the Democratic Party that if they keep on nominating people who think that we should be criminals, we're going to stop voting for their candidates. Is that realistic? It is for me. I'm not voting. No, I, for oh, I understand. I understand. But you're all about a movement, right? Did you understand the, the density of, of mass that it takes of, of, of human beings to get something moved. Is that, I, I'm really seriously asking, is that, is that realistic uh, to, to believe that we would do that? We would not vote for uh, that candidate. Look, in, in this country, uh, you have the right to write in any candidate that you want to. And, right. uh, and I, my position is that if the Democratic Party is going to continue to do what they did in the last election cycle, which is promise us our freedom and then deny it to us, mm -hmm. we have no choice but to stop voting for their candidates. I'm not saying that we vote for another party's candidates necessarily. But I, for one, I'm a cannabis person who is not ever going to vote for somebody that thinks that I should be in prison. Well, I understand. I, I appreciate that, that clarity. Look, uh, you go around, you were just in Austin uh, a few days ago, and you were at South by Southwest, and um, and you, you had this gentleman, uh, Michael Thompson, with you. And um, I think you, did you guys do a film or there was a film created about his story in this event. Michael Thompson uh, used to be the longest serving nonviolent prisoner in the Michigan prison system. He was sentenced to a 40 to 60 year term for the sale of three pounds of cannabis in the early 1990s. Um, Michael uh, was released uh, last year um, uh, after a very, very long and difficult campaign um, that hundreds of thousands of people participated in. Um, Michael was a leader of his community before he was busted. He was mm -hmm. a leader of his community in prison, and he continues to be a leader now advocating for the release of, of all of his, his brothers and sisters still in prison. He is a remarkable individual, and I'm very proud to, to stand beside him. He, he did not come there with, with me, but I did stand beside him and, and help support him in, in the good work he's doing. That is so awesome. That is uh, so awesome. Look, I, I would be remiss, uh, Steve, if I, if I didn't get you to do this for the audience. Kind of give us a State of the Union on cannabis uh, for us. Well, you know, the most important thing that's going on with cannabis today is that more and more people all around the world are using it. Uh, <laughs> we hear a lot of talk about legal reform. We hear right. a lot of talk about the money that's being made in the industries that are being created. But, you know, we didn't start this movement to make people wealthy or even to create jobs. We didn't know about the history or the science of cannabis back then. We knew one thing which is that cannabis helped us be more like the people that we wanted to be. And we figured that if it did that for us, it would do it for everybody else. And, and that if more people consumed cannabis, eventually we were more likely to live in the world that we all really wanted to live in. Um, I think that, that we are in the process of seeing that happen worldwide today. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of 
darkness in the world. There's a lot of fear in the world. There's a lot of war and hatred in the world. I think that the hope that cannabis and the other plant medicines are, are bringing us really is the light that's there for us to follow. And, and if we follow the plants, I think everything's going to be all right. <laughs> I love that message. I absolutely love that message. Steve, I want to thank you um, for all of us at Plant Profits and all of us at Protus Global and our audience uh, and everyone here on this special day for us all celebrating 420 that you were here on uh, Plant Profits uh, sharing the wisdom, the love, the experience, and, and really being able to talk about what's really important uh, with this plant and and where we can go with this plant the the future is limitless if we allow it to be so i want to thank you for for being here and i want to i want to thank everyone for being here on plant profits and and really appreciate you you coming and listening to our show um Vern davis your host and you can get episodes and download episodes of plant profits by going to cannabisradio.com obviously and wherever apple spotify amazon like i said google uh wherever you get your podcast uh delight uh you can go and you can find plant profits and download it immediately go today and do that and don't forget to look for the release of this 420 Steve D'Angelo special version of Plant Profits and um, enjoy. Thank you all very much. And uh, look, you can follow Protus Global, my company, on all social media sites, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and learn more about how we are building companies uh, and how we are changing people's lives. And that's Protus Global dot com p-r-o-t-i-s global uh, dot com happy 420 everyone until next time cheers The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.